Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. We're just a few weeks out from the 2020 election, and we want to make sure every eligible voter has the information they need to register to vote and cast a ballot. We're teaming up with Rock the Vote to help you register and make sure you have all the resources you need. Don't wait until the last minute. Check out Rock the Vote's resources now to make sure you're ready and signed up to get any election-related updates at rockthevote.org. Not sure if you're registered to vote? Find out at rockthevote.org. Not registered? Register to vote at rockthevote.org. Sign up to get election-related notifications that affect you at rockthevote.org. Your voice is powerful, and you're in the best position to influence your friends and family. So take the time to talk with them about the importance of making sure their voter registration is up to date and share these resources with them at rockthevote.org. Now on to the show. When you think about Wisconsin, you probably imagine blue skies, an old white guy in overalls tending to his dairy cows, cheese, a lot of the things we've talked about so far. But there's another reality to the state that we haven't addressed yet, the city of Milwaukee. And as much as Wisconsin's dairy farmers are a microcosm of rural America's struggle, so too is the deeply segregated city of Milwaukee a microcosm of racial inequality in this country. As is the case with many other big American cities, Milwaukee shoulders the burden of being very blue in a sea of red. And Democrats hope its turnout will pull the rest of the state over to their side. But traditions of voting laws that disproportionately discourage people of color from going to the polls make turning out these voters increasingly challenging. And as we saw in 2016, when apathy sets in and numbers drop in places like Milwaukee, their voting patterns are singled out and blamed for the Democratic defeat. The challenge of empowering these voters and overcoming immense systemic obstacles is left to the organizers on the ground to grind it out. With all eyes on Milwaukee in 2020, the pressure is on. From Wonder Media Network, I'm Grace Lynch, and this is Winning Wisconsin, the story of one state fighting for its own political identity with national implications. As we discussed in our first episode, Wisconsin is not exactly what you'd call diverse. Only 6% of the population is Black, which is low even by Rust Belt standards. Pennsylvania doubles that number with 12%, and Michigan is even higher at 14%. And nearly 70% of all Black Wisconsinites live in Milwaukee County. You know, I am so proud to be from Wisconsin. You know, it's a state that is renowned for being right on the escape route on the Underground Railroad for escaped slaves. That's Congresswoman Gwen Moore. She represents Milwaukee County in Congress. 
You may remember her from the opening of the Democratic National Convention. She wore a bright mint green suit and absolutely beamed while talking about Milwaukee. She is very proud of her city. Milwaukee, like much of the state, has a progressive history. Leftist American politicians still take nods from the Socialist Party that ran the city for much of the 20th century. Following World War II, many black Americans moved to the city to work in its booming manufacturing industry. But when manufacturing began to recede in the 1970s, things changed. In Wisconsin in 1979, black workers earned above national average black wages. That was rooted in manufacturing and union manufacturing jobs in Milwaukee. And the decimation of the manufacturing sector drove, you know, really drove a very (laughs) difficult road straight through the working class of this state. White families and black families suffered, but black families suffered in much more significant ways. Laura Dresser is the associate director of COWS. You may remember her from previous episodes. Her team at COWS did a comprehensive study in conjunction with the Iowa Policy Project, Policy Matters Ohio, and the Economic Policy Institute about the disparities between black and white populations in the Midwest. The results were summarized in a report called Race in the Heartland. The conclusion is that Wisconsin's racial disparity is extreme. I think you're seeing consistently in that data that we have systems in this state that work pretty well for the white population. So school outcomes are above national averages, income right in line or above national averages. But then outcomes for the black population in those same institutions are well below national averages. That's what makes the distance large, right? We're not a state that doesn't work for anybody. We're a state that works for some people, but not everybody. And that's, I think to me, the real weight of it is to see how it is carried across in every area. Let's get into some of these data points. It starts at birth. Wisconsin ranks fourth worst nationally in the racial disparity of infant mortality rates. Black babies born in Wisconsin are three times more likely to die than white babies. The mortality rate of those black infants is 15.7 deaths out of every 1,000 births. That rate is the worst in the nation. Next, let's talk about home life. Wisconsin, once again, ranks fourth, this time in childhood poverty disparity. One in every three black children there lives in poverty. That's a rate three and a half times higher than their white peers. In school, Wisconsin boasts the worst national disparity in eighth grade math scores between black and white kids. For school suspension rates, Wisconsin is second worst. By the time a black Wisconsinite reaches adulthood, they're facing a new set of challenges. A black person in Wisconsin is 11 times more likely to be incarcerated than a white Wisconsinite. Only in New Jersey is the racial disparity in incarceration rates more extreme. And the list goes on. Disparity in employment, worst. Unemployment, worst again. Income, third worst. Homeownership, eighth worst. And finally, voter participation. In 2016, 74% of eligible white voters in Wisconsin cast their ballots, while only 47% of eligible black voters cast theirs. The only states to show a greater discrepancy are North and South Dakota. 
these inequalities developed in the decline of the manufacturing industry in the late 70s and hardened into place through discriminatory housing practices. Here's Laura. The economic isolation that came out, the segregation, the housing segregation that they lived in meant that the access to where the economy grew was just choked off. And so it is true that the manufacturing job loss hurt all of the state, but it also decimated, uniquely decimated the opportunities of Black people in the state. It's about a history of having worked in a set of jobs that are gone and the um, the lack of public transportation to get to where the jobs are, the harassment that you face when you drive your own car to get to the jobs, so that the segregation feeds itself and makes, you know, in every way you sort of end up facilitating or wearing this pathway that leads to that final disparate incarceration. And I think that's really important, too, because people too often want to say, well, this is just, this disparity is just the way the world is. I'm sad about it, maybe, or I think it's what people deserve. I mean, people say all sorts of things about racial disparity, but it isn't until you look at it and see how it changes, given the economy, that you begin to realize how systemic it is and that it is malleable and that we can do something about it. Milwaukee has, for many years, been considered the most segregated city in America, according to the ACLU. USA Today called it the worst place to move to as a Black American. Not only is the Black population in Wisconsin concentrated to the Milwaukee area, it's further segregated to the north side of the city itself. And the north side is home to the 53206 zip code, one of the most heavily incarcerated zip codes in the country. On nearly every block of the 53206 lives multiple formerly incarcerated individuals. A 2013 study from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee found that between 1990 and 2012, over half of all black men in their 30s and early 40s in Milwaukee County had served time. And Wisconsin's incarceration rate for black men is the highest in the country. According to the 2010 census, Wisconsin incarcerated about 13% of its black residents. That's nearly double the national average, and it absolutely dwarfs the state's rate for white men, which is only 1.2%. Nestled right in the heart of the 53206 is Block, or Black Leaders Organizing for Communities. This community organizing team was founded by Angela Lang, who after the 2016 election, realized that there needed to be a change in how Milwaukee voters were engaged in the civic process. We know that our folks are disproportionately impacted by voter suppression efforts. And to place the blame on that same community was infuriating. And I think it also was misguided because instead of placing a blame on a disenfranchised community, um, we really should be talking about the people that voted for the man. If we're going to point fingers at anyone, it really should be the people that showed up to vote for him, including the 52% of, of white women that, that voted for him. And so it felt that we were... At, again, a scapegoat 
for the outcome of the election. And, you know, something that I've, I've noticed and a trend I've noticed for a long time is that wins are shared by many, but losses tend to be at the feet of Black folks, as if we were the, the reason uh, the election went the way that it did and not, um, you know, the candidate or the campaign or anything else. And so it was really frustrating. And I think that really kind of, at least for me, kicked it into high gear of how are we doing things differently? How are we engaging communities of color differently? And then not waiting for a candidate or a party or an elected official to engage us. We were going to do that work ourselves and talk to our own people. Angela's taking a new approach to organizing, one that isn't as transactional as traditional political campaigning. Blocks, ambassadors, as they call them, come from the very community they're organizing in. And they're working in that community every day, regardless of whether there's an election happening or not. This need for a new approach was largely spurred by the media's portrayal of Milwaukee following the 2016 election. In just a few hours, Donald Trump will become the next president of the United States. On his path to victory, Trump won Wisconsin by about 22,000 votes. That slim margin, though, has some Milwaukee Democrats asking what happened as tens of thousands of reliable Democratic voters vanished in 2016. There is a mathematical reason to put so much weight on Milwaukee. There were 41,000 fewer votes cast in 2016 in Milwaukee compared to 2012. And among Black voters specifically, voter turnout declined by 19%. That's massive. Had turnout held to 2012 levels, Clinton would have won the state, and we might be looking back at a very different four years. But that's not the full picture. 2016 was the first year that Wisconsin implemented a very strict voter ID law. According to federal court records leading up to the election, 300,000 registered Wisconsinites now lacked the necessary ID to vote. And these new regulations disproportionately affected the black community in Wisconsin. After the election, a study by Civics Analytics compared states without new voter ID laws to states with them, like Wisconsin. They found that in predominantly black counties where there were no changes in the voter ID laws, turnout still dropped roughly 2% between 2012 and 2016. But in these counties, largely black communities, in states like Wisconsin where there were new voter ID laws, turnout dropped by 5%. And as a reminder, this is a state that Donald Trump won by less than a percentage point. So any increased drop-off is huge. With that in mind, Angela's frustrations are understandable. When we look at how the people who were able to vote were treated in the media, the seismic swing in the rural community by voters who supported Trump after previously supporting Obama, the pivot counties we talked about last week, were analyzed with the underlying question, why couldn't the Democrats reach them? Not, why didn't those voters do their job? Plus, it's worth remembering that Angela's largely disenfranchised community was not prioritized by the Clinton campaign. She never visited the state. And that lack of intention influenced how people felt about the importance of their vote. I've talked to people who, who've said to me, I didn't think I needed to vote. That's Denise Calloway. She's been a Milwaukee resident since the late 70s and worked in broadcast journalism for a time. She even shared an office with Charlie Sykes early on in their career. I have other folks who say to me, I just didn't think my vote really mattered that much. I didn't think it was that important. And there are other people who I've talked to who've said, I didn't like either candidate, so I just decided to sit it out. 
And much like the rest of the country, a lot of Milwaukee voters were confident that Wisconsin would go blue. After all, it had been going blue for years. Why would they suddenly suspect it change? I was somewhat worried, but I'm thinking it's Wisconsin. We are a blue state until suddenly we weren't. Even during the Scott Walker years, we were still a blue state. And then in, in 2016, all of a sudden we weren't a blue state anymore. The shock of 2016 galvanized a lot of people in Milwaukee. Angela's work became about combating that sense of voter apathy and replacing it with a new relationship to their civic lives. I think what's important for us is to really reframe this idea of civic engagement. Um, civic engagement is not just voting. If we think that we're just going to vote and then everything is going to magically be okay, then they wouldn't constantly try to take away our ability to vote all of the time. And so we want to make sure that we're having a full conversation. Ultimately, voting is one tactic, and it's an incredibly strong and powerful tactic, but we need to use all of the tactics at our disposal. You know, the fact that we've knocked 227,000 doors in the midterms, you know, it's pretty badass. I love it. You know, I, I love to humble brag and talk about that. But for me personally, as executive director, I define success of are there more people starting to be a part of the civic engagement process? If you are previously incarcerated and you haven't had your voting rights restored yet, People just don't even talk to folks um, because they're not the regular voter, so they must just not care when really, you know, people are getting their voting rights restored and maybe will be looking to plug in. But because they're not the super voter, they're not on our list to talk to. And so I think it's just important to, to really kind of paint a full picture of who we're leaving behind. A marker of increased civic engagement that signaled a success for Angela was when Block organized people to attend and testify in a city budget hearing. You know, the fact that we had so many people pack City Hall at a city budget hearing and, and testify all saying we don't want more money to the police department um, it was something really beautiful to watch in, in a way that we've never seen before. Usually budget hearings are a little wonky, um, but the fact that we were able to pack City Hall, I think is a really good indicator that people are starting to pay a, a little bit more attention and are starting to um, really understand the process a little bit more and how they can interject themselves in this political process. I don't believe that people are apathetic. I think people have just been so disenfranchised. Um, people just don't know how to interject themselves in a system that wasn't meant for us to participate in. And I think there's a lot of challenges that, that come with that, that if people got to know, people would really understand just how much of a, a hurdle it is um, for some of our folks to participate. And while Angela may not be driven by numbers, knocking on 227,000 doors for a midterm election is nothing to scoff at. For the last few years, Block has been asking, what would it look like for our community to thrive? And that means organizing and educating a population on anything from budgets to ballot initiatives and candidates at all levels of government. It's working to close that stark racial disparity on who turns up to the ballot box in Wisconsin. And as if that wasn't enough heading into a pivotal election year, 2020 had some curveballs. Coronavirus gains ground in Wisconsin. Coronavirus cases among African-Americans continue to ravage Milwaukee County. The city of Milwaukee says they now have evidence of community spread. High number of new COVID-19 cases in the state is sounding the alarm for Milwaukee County leaders who say efforts to stop the virus must be doubled. This is about the potential to lose as many lives as this state has lost to any disease in over half a century. And that's real and that's why we're all here. 
Well, you know, clearly Milwaukee, Wisconsin was one of the places where they recognized that there was a disparate impact of African-Americans contracting COVID-19. And I mean, maybe not contracting it, but dying, succumbing to it. It was a, one of the first recognitions that this was the case. And so it really harkened back to what we've always known, just the critical mass of inequities in healthcare. When you combine that pandemic with the, uh, the pre-pandemic, Milwaukee was already suffering. That's Representative Gwen Moore again. In the midst of this public health crisis, Wisconsin held their primary election in April. Governor Tony Evers attempted to postpone the election, as many other states had done, but the state Supreme Court struck down his executive order and mandated that the vote carry on. Milwaukee, then the epicenter of the disease, unsurprisingly saw a significant drop-off in volunteer poll workers. It left the city with only five polling locations, down from the usual 180. I think we know that black and brown voters are really going to be the, the margin of error, where the, where the, the make or break of an election. And we also are the same um, communities that are disproportionately impacted by COVID, too. Um, so none of that is, is lost on us. Despite the unprecedented conditions in April, there was a historic voter turnout for a primary election, and a liberal justice was elected to the state Supreme Court. It was seen as a huge show of strength for the Democrats. But in Milwaukee, voter turnout dropped. And in order for the Democrats to carry the state in November, they're going to have to turn that around. As Angela told me, that sense of urgency has been brewing for a long time. There are folks that I've talked to who um, didn't vote in 2016 because neither candidate spoke to them. And then they fully anticipate voting this year because it's been almost four years of just constant, you know, tragedy and attacks on on our livelihood and, and who we are as people in a lot of cases. You know, our, our rights are, are being taken away. I think um, this is the most just, I'm going to come out and say it, I guess like the most um, bigoted president that I've, I've ever seen. And, and some presidents own slaves, right? Like there's, there's a lot that's, that's happening um, that we haven't seen in recent memory. There is never, I felt the, the sense of urgency, the way people are feeling now. Denise Calloway, who we heard from earlier, is feeling that urgency. She's volunteering for the Biden-Harris campaign. This is her first time volunteering for any campaign. And the reason she signed on is directly tied to the top of the ticket. It was Kamala Harris. And when she was named the vice presidential candidate, it really just spoke to me. I'm 63 years old. I spent a lot of my life being the first in any particular job I had, the first African-American woman. And one of the things that I learned is that when there is someone who is a first, and you want there to be a second and a third and a fourth. Everybody has to work together to make sure that individual is successful. I'd never volunteered for a campaign before this. And I belong to Zeta Phi Beta sorority. And one of my sorority sisters is actively engaged and involved in the Biden campaign. And I reached out to her to say, what's going on? What can I do? And I understand how important it is for women to vote how important it is for African-Americans to vote. We can make the difference in this election, and we will. Zeta Phi Beta is one of the Divine Nine, a group of historically Black sororities. Kamala Harris is a member of fellow Divine Nine, Alpha Kappa Alpha. 
You may have seen their photo that went viral on Twitter of several of the sorority sisters in Stroll to the Polls t-shirts. It's a formidable group. The Biden campaign has been tapping into this network to gin up momentum amongst a very key group of voters. In 2016, 94% of black women voted for Hillary Clinton. For Denise, the energy on the ground feels very different this time around. I see, again, literally more Biden signs in the community than I saw Hillary signs four years ago. But I I think there's another reason that people are more enthusiastic, and that really is Joe Biden. Joe Biden is someone who people feel that they know. When you think about all of the work that he did, I'm I'm a baby of the auto industry, and I think about how he worked to make sure that when we had the economic recovery plan, he worked to save jobs in the auto industry. That's important to me. That's important to other people as well. Joe Biden is certainly touting his Rust Belt roots during this campaign, while Donald Trump's focus is all about law and order. As protests continued across the country this summer, the nation's attention turned to Wisconsin when police shot Jacob Blake in Kenosha, just 40 miles south of Milwaukee. Trump's rhetoric towards protesters landed close to home. President Trump traveled to Kenosha, Wisconsin today, even though the state's governor asked him not to visit. These are rioters. These are dangerous people. These are killers. They kill a lot of people. Representative Gwen Moore isn't having it when it comes to Trump's law and order message. It is not going to be the site of the second civil war. Sorry, Donald Trump. You know, and so he tried to cultivate that and that just fell like a lead balloon here because this is just not our culture. Angela, meanwhile, sees the events of this summer as the most recent reminder of everything that's on the line this November. We are living in in strangely different times, whether it's the pandemic or the the Breonna Taylor protests. We're we're seeing very tangible things and these very egregious things that he's saying that generally you don't do in an election year. You don't really try to piss off voters. You don't launch tear gas at peaceful protesters. Um, You don't tweet when the looting starts shooting and quite frankly put targets on the backs of our people. All of these things, that's not a distant memory. And he consistently is showing himself and his his views um, and his rhetoric that are incredibly dangerous. So we don't need to go back into the, the the archives of our mind and into the vault to dig up all the things that he's done over the last four years. We can just look at all the egregious things he's done just this year alone and how he has not protected our community. Like, it's one thing to protect our community and not cause any harm. He also hasn't done anything proactive for our community as well. From Denise's experience calling voters, COVID-19 and racial justice are the two main issues driving Milwaukee residents to the polls. I think COVID is the thing that people experience every day, but whether it's Kenosha or Louisville or Savannah or Minneapolis, there are these constant reminders that the racial injustice that has existed in this country for 400 years is still here and it's front and center. The difference is in the past, particularly during the Obama years, but even during the Bush years, we had a president who realized that there were these inequities that were taking place that could be deadly for people of color. They realized that and they worked to address it. 
we have a president now who can't even say three words, Black Lives Matter. And people know that. They understand that, they feel that, and they see it. So it is a level of frustration that is not born just from these incidents, as horrible and tragic as they are, that have happened. It is all of the other things that come with the racial injustice that exists in this country that black and brown people experience every single day. And to have a president who doesn't recognize this, who says, you know, they're good people on both sides, both sides. No, they're not. No, they're not. And I think that is something that is particularly resonating with young people who I talk to. So this is the backdrop Democrats are up against. As in 2016, the election could all hinge on a city grappling with systemic oppression, a pandemic that disproportionately affects Black and Brown Americans, and the largest racial justice movement since 1968. All this pressure on Milwaukee is something Angela thinks about every day. I've been saying this for years, actually, um, and I try to tell and reinforce our, our team almost like every day that there's really no way to win a statewide election without black and brown voters in the city of Milwaukee. We've seen that in 2016. We also saw it a little bit in 2018 in the midterm elections and the outcome. We were able to elect Governor Evers because at about one in the morning is when the absentee ballots from the city of Milwaukee were still being counted and were coming in. So we know that Milwaukee and communities of color, specifically in Milwaukee, can make or break an election statewide. That being said, understanding the importance of Wisconsin to the overall narrative. And so if there's no way to win a statewide election without us and understanding that Wisconsin is going to be maybe the state that decides the election, it puts that much more pressure on our particular community and that it's it's bigger than just trying to get Wisconsin to go one way and that that's why there's so much attention being played on our community right now because it really can all come down to Black voters in the city of Milwaukee. Representative Gwen Moore has found herself calling this the most important election of our lifetime. I'm so reluctant. I think I've never used the term that this is the most important election in your lifetime because it just gets to be, people think that it's just an idiomatic expression. But I, I want to tell people that the rest of your life is tied up into what happens. And there's an existential threat to all of us if we don't uh, unelect the Donald Trump. Denise views the election as a critical referendum for both the country as a whole and for Wisconsin. We're a state that sometimes struggles with our political identity, and I'm okay with that. As long as, as a state, we still hold on to those values that make us a state where people want to live and where people want to be. I don't want to say people in Wisconsin feel bad that they elected Donald Trump and that maybe we're the state that pushed him over the top. But I do think there's some people who really do feel bad that we elected Donald Trump, that we played a role in him being president and all of the things that have happened since then. So I, I do think people are much more aware of the stakes that are in play during this election. I think that as a nation, we are really struggling, and there's good reason for us to struggle. But I, I truly believe that with this election, 
there is a chance for us to get back to being a country where we're not pitted against each other, but where we work to help each other. And where we work together to figure out solutions. That is what America is. That is what Wisconsin is. While Denise may be able to see a rosy future, Angela's more keen on keeping her head down and not taking her eye off the ball in the final stretch. Everything makes me nervous about November, if I'm speaking honestly. I was talking to a friend today, and 2020 just keeps getting wilder and wilder, and it feels like we're stuck in the game of Jumanji. Like, what's next? You know, okay, murder hornets one day, global pandemic another. So I'm always going to be nervous. I'm going to be nervous up until we get the election results and not taking anything for granted. I think that's a big lesson I learned from 2016. Don't focus and rely on the polls. Just keep your head down and continue doing what you're doing. A lot rides on the city of Milwaukee. In a New Yorker profile of the city that ran in February of this year, it described Milwaukee as a downtrodden urban community with a superpower to choose the next president. I think I'd like to focus on the superpower part of that. Even though Milwaukee may be a microcosm of the poisons in America's racial divide, it has immense power. It's just a matter of getting out the vote. So as the election barrels down upon us, We're looking at just that, the ground game. Next week on Winning Wisconsin, we're looking at the state of the horse race and how both Democrats and Republicans are vying for votes. The Democrats are up in the cloud and we're on the ground knocking on doors. It is those suburban Republican voters who might be softening, particularly suburban Republican women. No one can credibly say that they want four more years of this. Winning Wisconsin is a Wonder Media Network production. It's created by myself, Grace Lynch, and produced by myself and Maddie Foley. Our executive producer is Jenny Kaplan. For more from Wonder Media Network, follow us on Twitter at WMN Media. You can find me on Twitter at GraceLynch08. Talk to you next week. Before you go, I want to tell you about another show I think you'd really like. We're in the midst of an election cycle that demands we make our voices heard. And the most effective way to campaign is by talking to the people you know. From Wonder Media Network, Majority 54 equips you with the tools to talk to your conservative friends and acquaintances, counter misinformation that's gone rampant online, and still maintain relationships with those whose opinions differ from your own. Each week, hosts Jason Kander and Ravi Gupta are talking to the 54% of Americans who didn't vote for Donald Trump and are committed to changing the minds of the 46% who did. Listen to Majority 54 wherever you get your podcasts.